Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. As readers of Fortune and Freedom, there's one thing that you're never short of, and that's questions. Yes, you're always asking us questions and you've got every right to do so. So this is the first time I've done a Fortune and Freedom question time straight to camera. It will be the first of many. Now, Daryl from Gloucester is retired. Uh, he's got his money that he saved over the years. He's got an annuity, and that's paying him out about half of what he was earning when he had a full-time job. He's got some money in bonds, bringing in a very, very small, very small monthly income. And he asked the question, is fortune and freedom for people like him, or is it for those still working and actively saving for the future? Honestly, Daryl, I would say this to you. I think the primary goal for me has been those that are in work and trying to guarantee their future for later, because I do fear uh, that many of those at the younger age today are going to really struggle when they get older unless they make provision. So yes, it is about those in work, making sensible long-term investments, but equally, for those that are retired, just think about this, Daryl. Inflation is back. There's no denying it. And if the lessons of history are correct, that inflation is a disease of money, that once it's set in, takes a long time to go away, that threatens, too, people like you with whatever investments you've got left open. So what we're trying to do with our new Inflation Survival Guide is to say to people, in these potentially very dangerous periods, there are some big threats, but equally some opportunities also. So I think it does apply to those that are retired as well. Well, somehow I knew the questions wouldn't all be economic. Because Steve asks me, why did the Americans not spike all of their guns so that the Taliban couldn't get use of them. Some of the helicopters and planes at the airport itself were spiked, but the rest of it, the Taliban have got it all. And I think uh, Biden's withdrawal, the manner of his withdrawal from Afghanistan is one of the biggest military and strategic errors we have seen in modern times. We've literally armed our enemies. We've opened up $3.5 trillion worth of mineral reserves, including a lot of lithium, potentially, to the Chinese Communist Party. The whole thing is a disaster. And yeah, I know they say Trump wanted to leave. Well, he did. But you can see a speech Trump gave in 17, where he said, yes, of course, I'd rather there weren't American soldiers still there in Afghanistan. But what we're going to do is reduce it to a very low number and help the Afghan army to fight this threat. And that's pretty much what's been going on you know, ever since that period of time. Uh, and, and, and Biden has made the world a far less safe place. His popularity ratings in America are crashing. And I think there's a fair argument to say he's the worst president America's ever had and the worst leader the Western world's ever had. Well, Tim writes from Guernsey saying how concerned he is about his family back in the United Kingdom, given what's happening with the National Health Service. Now, look, you're not allowed to criticise the NHS at all, because if you do, it means you don't like the nurses and don't like the doctors. That's been the narrative in this country for years. Just keep pumping in money, and even if the return on that investment means we have heart, cancer and stroke rates that are worse than France or Germany and our near neighbours, please no one complain, otherwise you get shouted down. I think we've moved beyond that. I think we've realised that the NHS is facing a looming massive crisis, that we as a nation are facing a huge health crisis. As a result of COVID, as a result of clearing out the hospitals, we are so far behind on diagnoses of cancer 
diabetes and so many other serious and often life-threatening conditions. And our GPs, because of the way Mr Blair wrote the contracts, don't even have to see us face to face. And I think there's a growing sense of outrage about all of this. Boris Johnson just wants to keep shoveling money in, but to keep shoveling money into a system that is unreformed isn't good enough. There is going to be, I promise you, Tim, a very different debate about the NHS over the course of the next few weeks, months and years. And yes, we all want an NHS that is free at the point of delivery, but that's not the same as defending the monolith that the NHS itself has become. So it's no surprise that private GP surgeries are springing up all over the country, offering face-to-face -face consultations, many of them open for 24 hours a day. And for those that can afford it, they're opting out and they're getting their knee replacements and hip replacements done privately. So I do see quite a boom actually in private medical health, which is fine for those that can afford it, but not so fine for those that can't. So a big, open, honest conversation about the NHS is long overdue, and I very much intend to be a part of that debate. Well, Peter's asking me about the accumulated national debt. I mean, it's not just here, it's across much of the rest of the Western world. So you've got a massive buildup of debt, but you've also got rapidly rising living costs in this country, whether it's fuel, haha, if you can get it, whether it's food or whatever else it may be. You know, that's what happens in a period of inflation. Now, Peter, you are, you are worried uh, that what governments will do is basically screw down the average household. The way government's going to do this to you is by allowing inflation to go up. Classically, normally, central banks put interest rates up to clamp down on inflation. But whatever the governor of the Bank of England says, they can't put interest rates up that much. Otherwise, the whole thing will be a disaster. And secretly, and here's the truth of it, the only way government gets out of the vast amounts it's borrowed is if they allow the economy to inflate it away. And that means government reduces the size of its debt. And those of you that have been prudent and put money aside for your retirement or for a rainy day will find those assets severely devalued if you keep everything in conventional investments. And that's part of what we're trying to do here on Fortune and Freedom is we're saying there is a great threat coming to people's nest eggs and we want to try and help you navigate your way through that because with threats there also always come opportunities. Well Jerry D asks a very pertinent question, will the green industry survive without government subsidies? And this Jerry has driven me bonkers for years. There's been no proper debate. The wind energy, whether it's onshore or offshore, much of it's been paid for by ordinary folk paying 20 to 25% more on their electricity bills to subsidise rich landowners and big foreign wind farm companies. It's driven me bonkers for years. Nobody in the House of Commons actually wants to tell the truth about this because they're all signed up to the green agenda. Well, I want a green agenda. I, of course, want renewable energy to work. But frankly, if it's just used as a means to transfer huge sums of money from the poor in this country to the rich, then that's an outrage. And then we learn. Oh, on a good day, we're told, 25% of our energy comes from wind. Well, what about the first half of September, when the wind barely blew and only 2% of our energy needs came from wind? Then we're relying on gas to back it up. But of course, we're not producing enough of our own gas, despite the fact we've got a great big potential gas field 
in the northwest of England. No, we're importing gas. We're bringing it in from the rest of the world. And our genius Conservative government, I mean, these boys are really sharp, what they did was to get rid of our strategic gas storage facility on, on, on the East Coast. So we now have a national strategic reserve of gas of 1.7% of our annual usage. I mean, the French, the Germans have 20%. You simply couldn't make this stuff up. So at some point in time, if we get a big anti-cyclone over us in the winter, we may find the lights go out, which, okay, you know, it happened in 74, but today we're living in a computerized, digitized age. It would be a disaster. So renewable energy is fine, but not if it leads to that massive transference of wealth. And I'm going to be honest with you. If we really want going ahead from here, if we really want to have a regular, reliable, continuous flow of energy, if we want to prevent the fact that not only do we import gas and coal, but we also import 10% of our electricity through interconnectors with France, who could, if they wanted to, and turn nasty, uh, you know, shut them off. We need to become self-sufficient on energy. And the only way we're going to do that, the only way we can do that and reduce CO2 emissions is to reinvest in nuclear energy. Not the monstrosities, those vast buildings of the 50s and 60s, not the ones the Chinese want to build, which are a very, very similar version. There are new modular nuclear reactors. Think about it. The technology we're selling to the Australians for their submarines. Each of those subs has a small nuclear reactor in the back of it. New modular nuclear energy, I believe, is the only way we can satisfy all of those conditions. And I think, I think we're getting ready to have that debate.